This is Guns and Butter. What do you do? Look at this ability of the Federal Reserve to open these windows, credit stimulus windows, and notice that this is done by the Federal Reserve by itself. No congressional action is necessary. And all of this can be done off the federal budget. In other words, this is federal lending, not federal spending. And it can be done by the Federal Reserve acting as a national bank. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, beat austerity with a 1% Wall Street sales tax and a nationalized Fed. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Obama, The Postmodern Coup, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity. On today's program, we discuss the sequestration and how we got here. The Satan Sandwich of the Budget Control Act of July-August 2011. The shift to the right by the ruling class, their controlled media, and Obama. A 1% Wall Street sales tax and opening a credit window at the Fed to fund the rebuilding of America. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. Let's talk about the sequestration, which was due to begin on March 1st. Sequestered, of course, meaning held back, will amount to $85 billion in allocated federal funding that will not be spent for the rest of 2013. That is, unless some sort of political agreement is reached which would what, lower the deficit? How does this work, and how did we get here? Well, sequester, uh, after all, one of the meanings of sequester is kidnapped. Uh, There there was a fairly famous play by Jean-Paul Sartre back in the 50s and 60s called The Sequestered of Altona, right, about uh, post-war Germany. It means kidnapped, right, or you're being held against your will. So now... We're the sequestered of uh, of Washington, D.C., and of the U.S. Uh, in general. The sequester, uh, I would say, is a piece of policy insanity, and it has to do with the uh, unrealistic uh, and, and unproven reactionary theory that it's important to cut the budget deficit in the middle of a depression, and that... Uh, that this somehow takes priority over every other priority, including, interestingly enough, defense for these reactionary Republicans, which is something of a surprise. Um, But they are convinced, I I think they're they're coming from some kind of a um, Calvinist point of view where they see debt and deficit as some kind of equivalent of original sin. And, of course, they also want to use the current depression as an excuse to carry out things that they've always wanted, which is the destruction of the New Deal uh, and Great Society and and New Frontier uh, social reforms, the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and and many others, though, the Women, Infants, Children Program, the Head Start Program. All of those things are are things that these uh, reactionaries, right, starting with the Koch brothers or Koch brothers, as they call themselves, 
Um, they they hate these things, and they feel that now is the chance. Under the cover of dealing with this crisis, they can they can carry out uh, a raid, a destructive attack, which they've been wanting for seventy five years, and the, really the best part of a of a century. Right? They they would also get deregulation and other things out of it. The current sequester goes back to the coming of the Tea Party in the 2010 elections, and then as soon as they got into Congress, what did they do with the first budget that was uh, available to them? And above all, the debt ceiling of July and August of 2011. And you'll remember that what came out of that was it was clear that the Republicans were eager, some of them anyway, to have the United States go into national bankruptcy and default, because that would uh, perhaps put an end to all federal borrowing or make it so expensive that um, that it wouldn't be uh, carried out. So this was a kind of an extreme measure that some of them wanted uh, to get rid of the entitlements, which they could never really do through a normal um, parliamentary process, but they could do it by national bankruptcy. And, and that didn't quite work for them, but of course the damage was severe. So uh, I would say... And on this one, I would give Obama and the Democrats something of the benefit of the doubt. Uh, the Satan sandwich. The Satan sandwich is the Budget Control Act of uh, July, August, 2011, and this is what what Congressman Cleaver called it, and it's correct. So the Satan sandwich is is what we're still uh, living with because the Satan sandwich said we need uh, 1.5 trillion dollars of budget cuts over the next 10 years. Uh, we're going to create a super committee. I, I called them the 12 tyrants uh, that will meet, and they'll attempt to come up with some combination of tax increases, budget cuts, and other things that should uh, amount to the $1.5 trillion. And if they fail, there will be $1 trillion of automatic across-the-board budget cuts, which will come from virtually every uh, area of the federal government's activity, including defense, including the so-called um, discretionary domestic spending, uh, but not Social Security. Uh, although Medicaid, Medicare will be uh, included in it, so that is the deadline that we reached really on January first as part of the fiscal cliff. But then this was delayed until uh, March 1st. So we've just had this, um, this sequester. Now, we're already quite a few months into the fiscal year, right? The fiscal year begins on October 1st. So we're, uh, we're about halfway through, um, just about. Um, so therefore, about $85 billion in budget cuts are being carried out right now, right? We're right in the middle of it. And, um, that looks forward to a, a total of a uh, trillion dollars over over the decade. Now, uh, one one thing that has happened uh, is a shift, and we'll talk about this shift later. But the the shift that we've just gone through is a shift of orientation of the ruling class and of their characteristically controlled media. Uh, up until about a week ago, the uh, controlled media tended to look on budget cuts uh, of this draconian, brutal quality 
as being something bad, right? Something mean, something that the, the mean Republicans want to do to the country because they're interested in protecting the rich. Uh, but we've now had a shift where the media are now tending to ridicule and minimize the idea that real concrete individuals, right, real people, are getting badly hurt as a result of this uh, sequester. But uh, that, is, that is the case. Well, you know, in your article, Brutal Austerity Measures Paint Disturbing Picture of U.S. Economy, that article lists many programs that are already being affected. Could you right. cite a few of these? Yeah. Um, first of all, even though Medicaid, duh, Social Security, and food stamps are not on the chopping block at the moment, uh, defense is and, and the many, many social safety net programs um, are. Uh, so let's just go through. Uh, Medicare has already been looted to the tune of $700 billion by Obama. And the Obama administration claims that that $700 billion that they've already siphoned out uh, is going to come from providers. So what they're saying is you, the individual beneficiary, will not be hit by that, but hospitals, doctors, laboratories... Uh, other kinds of uh, people who manufacture health devices, things like this, pharmaceutical companies, they will be hit. But, of course, it's an illusion to think that you can take $700 billion out of a program and not have it come down to individuals. The most common effect is that people are having a difficult time, especially in Texas, I believe, and some other states, just finding doctors that are still willing to take uh, Medicare. There's something going on in the background, which is not the state and sandwich, but it's the so-called doc fix, that there's a law from, from the Clinton administration that would lower brutally the, the remuneration of health care providers, and that has got to be made up every year with the so-called doc fix. Now, we have the doc fix passed for this year, but this is touch and go every year, and some doctors say with its the risk is too great, and they don't want to take on any more uh, Medicare uh, patients. Well, under the sequester, we have $10 billion in new cuts uh, for Medicare over the next uh, seven months, actually. So uh, let's look at unemployment insurance, right? This is a title of the Social Security Act of 1935. Well, uh, that is going to be cut by about 9.5%, but in some states, uh, it's more. This goes especially to people who have been unemployed for more than six months and who are getting unemployment benefits that are totally funded by the feds through uh, various kinds of uh, extended unemployment plans, such as the one that was part of the uh, fiscal cliff fix that went through in uh, January. Um, school lunches for poor children will be cut. Um, there's a program for rental assistance for destitute families. Well, 125,000 of those families are going to lose their rental assistance, and 100,000 families may become homeless, many of them having been homeless already before. Now, let's focus a little bit in depth on one of the most dramatic. This is the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, Children, WIC. And this is simply high-protein meals. It's eggs cheese, meat, uh, dairy products. It goes to pregnant women, expectant mothers, nursing mothers, and it's available also for infant formula. Now, uh, the 
number of beneficiaries on this is about 9 million plus, and it's going to be cut by about 5%. But the problem with this is that since we're already well advanced into the year, the cuts are going to be backloaded. In other words, the real cuts will come towards the end of this period. So the estimate from a think tank here called, I guess it's called the Center for Budget Priorities, they're estimating that between 575,000 and 750,000 expectant mothers are going to be turned away from WIC uh, in the final months of fiscal 2013. So that would mean, you know, July, August, September. Fiscal year ends on September 30th. Now, think about what this means. Um, cognitive impairment for lack of protein and from vitamin deficiencies in the mother and what that means for the life of a baby born under this regime. I mean, it's chilling. This is, this is lifelong damage that can be done as a result of this kind of uh, really brutal fascist uh, cut. Let's look at another one, which maybe people can uh, appreciate. The National Institutes of Health, right, located here in Bethesda, Maryland. So here you're talking about the greatest single capability of biomedical research anywhere in the world. And the cut uh, for the NIH is $1.6 billion over the next seven months. Now, suppose you're a young scientist seeking your first research grant. Right? You're, you're not going to get it. Uh, suppose you're an older, more experienced scientist trying to get your your research grant uh, continued. Uh, that is also not looking very good. And we have an authoritative voice, Dr. Elias Zerhouni, who was Bush's man, a Bush Republican appointee to be the head of the NIH from 2002 to 2008, has gone on record saying that the result of the sequester in biomedical research will be to set medical research back one entire generation, 20 years. So think about that, right? And think about how you're going to feel if you're, you know, diagnosed with some incurable disease and think that maybe your life could have been saved if this vandalism had not occurred on the NIH. Now, concerning the Defense Department, I know people have, uh, you know, strong feelings about this, but I, I would say it is a very bad idea to simply go into the Defense Department and start cutting programs. You have to remember that uh, the advanced research and development and production capabilities that the Pentagon has are among the few trump cards that the United States retains in, in terms of global competition. So I would always say the approach ought to be the reconversion of the Pentagon to peaceful production. That is, the assembly lines that are currently creating tanks or warplanes or warships, these need to be reconverted for things like energy production, a vast expansion of the space program, a vast expansion of, uh, of uh, public transportation of the most modern type, which becomes aeronautic in terms of a lot of its uh, aspects. Uh, right now, the estimate is that in the defense area, when you factor in the prime contractors that are being hit, as well as the subcontractors, you could get up to 2 million jobs lost in the Pentagon just as a result of these uh, cuts. The specific loss of jobs inside the government, now this is all government, 
federal, state, local, because there were state and local jobs that depend on revenue sharing. This is about 750,000 jobs will be lost as a result of what is now occurring. But then there's also this multiplier, right? In other words, for every one of those 750,000, you've got between half a job or one job or two jobs, depending on, on what it is, uh, that depend on that. So you're really talking about something like one million to one and a half million jobs across the economy. So some combination of that is what, what you're going to, uh, to face. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Beat Austerity with a 1% Wall Street sales tax and a nationalized Fed. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Just a couple of other things. We have 173 airport control towers. Uh, San Francisco has some of these that will be closed. Uh, so whatever the current safety record is, it's hard to imagine that this function of managing the you know the direct runway traffic and landing and takeoff uh, that that's not going to be impacted by something like those uh, cuts. And you can look across the internet and find mountains and mountains of what they would call anecdotal uh, evidence, right? The Georgia Department of Labor is reducing unemployment benefits by 11%. If you're concerned about the Hanford Nuclear Reservation toxic waste site and the cleanup of that, that's getting cut $171 million because of the sequester. Uh, The Border Patrol, 24,000 employees will face furloughs of 14 days each. Um, In Utah, they thought they were bulletproof, but 23 employees of engineering services of Toole County are being laid off, and so forth. Uh, In Texas, $140 million in budget cuts is going to come out of Head Start, as well as the Meals on Wheels and similar programs for the elderly are going to get uh, the axe. Now, maybe just one or two more. Um, If you were planning to go to Yellowstone National Park, Uh, Don't go, because it's not going to open until much later in the year. Here's the thing. The Yellowstone National Park has been cut by $1.8 million. So uh, this was the money they needed to uh, rev up their plows and buy gasoline and get the snow, which is quite deep, off the uh, roads in the park. And now they're not going to be able to do that. They don't have the money for that, so they're going to wait for the snow to melt. The sun will do the job, but that may last until May or June. So uh, this is going to cause a regional recession at this point where Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho meet. And we've got, ironically, reactionary Republicans, right? people like Barrasso, uh, Republican of Wyoming, or the Republican governor of Wyoming, Matt Mead. They're screaming bloody murder. How dare you? They voted for these austerity cuts, right? Now they come home to roost and now they're um, indignant. So I think you get the idea. This is draconian. They're real examples of cruelty, too. I mean, you can look at, um, you know, look at, look at Head Start, right? There are, you know, tens of thousands of kids who would normally be getting a, a breakfast benefit. Maybe if they couldn't get it from WIC, they're a little bit older now, they might get it from Head Start. But no, some of them are going to be going to be thrown out as well. But notice the media mocks and ridicules this human suffering. They don't care about this. 
there is a ruling class consensus. There's a bipartisan Republican-Democrat, Obama, Boehner, all the rest of them, they all agree on this. They want uh, what I would call killer austerity, genocidal austerity, the beginnings of you know, vastly increased morbidity and mortality among the American people. And then for what? Um, let's look at an example, right? The most recent, uh, Britain. Britain is now in the third dip of a triple dip recession. I I cite Britain because it is the one uh, modern uh, advanced country, more or less, of Western Europe, uh, which has indulged in this really drastic austerity, and it doesn't work. The the deficit grows, the unemployment goes up, tax revenues go down, and it's simply uh, more and more destruction. And it's not just anecdotal. There's a think tank attached to the International Monetary Fund. And the IMF think tank often puts out things that contradict, to put it mildly, the policies of the IMF. They've studied about 175 episodes of austerity in many countries over the past 30 to 40 years. And they have found that almost never does austerity have a happy ending. It increases unemployment and it increases the expenditures for unemployment and causes economic activity to contract. And that, of course, means then that you've got less in the way of tax receipts and and your deficit gets bigger. The, The dirty secret of austerity is that it almost always increases the deficit in what we call the out years. In other words, in the successive fiscal uh, period, right? It's going to make things uh, worse. So this is an exercise in gratuitous, reactionary, proto-fascist cruelty. And it's, again, interesting that the media are, are not interested. They're only focused on the White House tours, right? And they want to mock that, right? That that's not serious. Or Anytime a specific example of austerity comes up, they say, oh, that's just Obama and the Democrats making things worse so that they can get a talking point. In other words, any, any example of suffering is immediately discounted. It's not real. But, of course, when, you, when you're talking about almost $100 billion a year in cuts, uh, a lot of it is real. So I think that's, that's more or less where we're left. Obama had a meeting last week at the Jefferson Hotel and lunch with Republican Congressman Ryan. He has an upcoming meeting at the Capitol. What sort of uh, so-called compromises are being proposed by Obama and also by the Republicans? What's going on? Well, let me say, first of all, that Obama has now taken a breathtaking, hard right turn, a real reactionary turn. And I would say if you uh, got impatient with Obama or felt betrayed by him in, say, the first three years he was in office or more, uh, that is the Obama who is now back. Uh, Obama took a left turn in his famous Osawatomi, Kansas speech in the autumn of 2011. And that has now been taken back, as far as I can see. The, The left turn is over and a hard right turn is on. You can compare uh, Obama's uh, Saturday speech. The first one in March is still campaign mode, you know, getting after the Republicans. The second speech on, uh, what was it, the 8th or 9th of March is already in this rotten compromise uh, mode. So uh, he's looking forward to the 27th of March, we have the so-called continuing 
resolution. This means the budget. The federal budget of the United States is extended through a series of continuing resolutions that can also include changes, right? It's not just continue everything as is, but different changes can be made. Uh, the most obvious change to be made is roll back the sequester. Forget about it. Cancel it. Get rid of it. We don't need it. There are a few uh, Democrats who, who say this, but this is not Obama's position. Obama would say, no, it has to be replaced by a balanced package of uh, genocidal entitlement cuts, uh, some token tax increases on the rich, and some other uh, budget cuts in the non-entitlement area. So um, the, the human position is to say the sequester is just a terrible mistake. The Satan sandwich was done under duress. Uh, get rid of it. But no, that's, that's not Obama. Then after the continuing resolution, probably, uh, the government will then run out of borrowing authority. Now, the Treasury has known for some months that they're going to lose their borrowing authority uh, in May. And hopefully they are tanking up on money. They should, they should borrow a whole lot of money so that they can go on for a long time. But sometime in the summer, uh, they will run out of money. And at that point, we'll have that again, right? The threat, and this is the most serious of all. This is the national bankruptcy default, right? The way we got the first Satan sandwich. This is where the Republican blackmail and extortion capability is at its height. Now, Obama could easily deal with this. He could simply say, the 14th Amendment clearly states that the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned, and therefore the debt ceiling is unconstitutional, and default is illegal. So I'm telling uh, the new Secretary of the Treasury, Jack Lew, to borrow the money we need to meet the obligations of the United States. There will be no default. Let's bargain in good faith. But dear Republicans, take this off the table because it will not happen. And, uh, and let the Supreme Court say what they want. This is, um, this is a little bit like you know when Lincoln was facing Tawney uh, back during the Civil War. You just have to assert executive power and, uh, and the people will support you. And then once the people support you, the Supreme Court will uh, will eventually follow sooner or later. Isn't this what uh, Bill Clinton was suggesting that Obama do back in the day? Uh, yes, there has been some verbal support. Um, well, uh, Pelosi says you should invoke the 14th Amendment. The uh, top leaders in the Senate, Harry Reid and so forth, they say something similar. So... There is an area of support in the Democratic Party to, to obey the 14th Amendment, right? Obey the Constitution, obey the law, carry out your, your presidential duties. The problem with Obama is he doesn't want this. He wants the crisis to be able to impose this killer austerity. Because remember, go back to the infamous interview of Obama with the Washington Post editorial board in the week before his first inaugural in January 2009, and he says there something that he never said in his campaign, the main purpose of his presidency is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Social Security easier, he says, Medicare much harder, but those two demonic austerity missions, that is what he thinks he's been put there for. And, of course, to say that he's a Wall Street puppet, I think, by now, is, is superfluous. Also, look at this woman that he's put in as the budget director, right? Um, the new candidate for budget director is someone who comes most recently from the Walmart Foundation, but her background, her name is 
Sylvia Thompson Burwell. She was Robert Rubin's chief of staff at the Treasury, right? And Rubin is the the evil demiurge, let's say, who championed the repeal of Glass-Steagall, the repeal of the ban on interstate banking, and the full deregulation of derivatives back in uh, 1998, 99, and, and 2000. And those are the roots of the crisis in the most uh, profound uh, way. So there has been this shift, and, and let's get right to it. The, the landmark meeting is Obama going two or three blocks north of the White House to the Jefferson Hotel and meeting with this gang of 12 Republican austerity senators. Uh, I would call them, again, austerity ghouls. I don't know what else you can call them. And having this uh, you know, hobnobbing dinner, uh, this is something that he, he doesn't do a lot, right? It is a change. And out of this, according to the Washington Post, buried inside in a little paragraph, Obama's offer to the Republicans is this. Five hundred billion more in austerity cuts, focusing on federal health care programs. So that means Medicare for sure. It may mean Medicaid. It probably means veterans benefits. It may mean this Pentagon Tricare, which is the sort of gold-plated Cadillac plan that some people from the from the Pentagon have. So five hundred billion. Now think of it. That's on top of the seven hundred billion already gouged. Obama wants to gouge another $500 billion. So at that point, we'd be up to $1.2 trillion in Medicare cuts primarily, although, again, some of these other things would also get hit. Now, don't tell me that's not hitting the actual quality of the benefit received. It is. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Beat Austerity with a 1% Wall Street sales tax and a nationalized Fed. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And then he's also in favor of the chained consumer price index. And what the chained CPI, the chained consumer price index is, yet another round, and I say another round because there was a round of this about 20 years ago. If you look at my book, Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide to the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History, I write in there about... Michael Boskin, who was the head of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors for George Bush, the elder, and he already fudged and cooked and falsified the consumer price index to try to slow these cost of living escalators. So they're coming back for a second round of that. And the, the basis of the chain CPI is it's it's sophistry. It's the kind of thing that only an economist here in late imperialism could get away with. They say, well, if you don't have enough money to buy a steak, maybe you'll buy a piece of chicken, and therefore you're getting the same meal. So we won't worry about the price of the steak. In other words, it's just a it's a a, a transparent, dirty subterfuge. It's a cheap trick to cut the cost of living escalator in, in Social Security. Now, what that means is that the Social Security benefit will dwindle. It'll get to be less and less and less over time. It is the old Newt Gingrich strategy from 1994-95, this famous speech, right? It was his version of the, you know, the 47%. He said, we want 
the entitlements to wither on the vine. They should wither on the vine. Well, here it is, now coming from a right-wing, Wall Street-controlled Democratic president. The chain CPI will, will do that. So those two things, right? $500 billion more in cuts and the chain CPI. Now, of course, Obama is looking for fig leaves. He's looking for political cover. Somehow, we're supposed to say, well, my Social Security benefit is dwindling, and my Medicare coverage is getting lousy. I can't find a doctor who will treat me on Medicare. But I can console myself because Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase now only has two private jets instead of three because of Obama's uh, tax cuts on, on the rich. This doesn't help me. Who cares? Right? This is cold comfort. It is no comfort. It is a Job's comforter to think that some rich guy has been nicked a little bit in these uh, sybaritic super luxuries, whereas you, the little person, you're getting gouged in the necessities and even in the few amenities you can have. So that's basically where, where Obama is, is heading. Um, the Democratic Progressive Caucus came out in the middle of February saying, Obama, we don't want any cuts in Social Security or Medicare. But in the most recent press conference, which was really part of this shift that we're talking about, Obama said again he is willing to do entitlement cuts, which he knows are anathema to the Democratic base. In other words, Obama strutting and gloating and flaunting his alleged moral superiority over these you know, benighted uh, leftists of the Progressive Caucus, he's willing to do the responsible thing and gouge Social Security, chisel Medicare, uh, but these leftists don't want him to do it. I, w- I would invite people to think. The Tea Party Caucus of the Republicans has about 80 members of the House and a half a dozen senators. The Progressive Caucus of the Democrats has about the same, about 80 members of the House of Representatives, and they probably have now Elizabeth Warren and Harkin and Sherrod Brown. They have a few senators, too. But if you look at the political power exercised, the Tea Party Caucus beats the Progressive Caucus 100 to 1 because they are willing to fight, and they're willing to defy their leaders, whereas this wretched, cowardly, progressive caucus, they are just not willing to have a public collision with Obama on these things. As soon as they see Obama's pretty face, they're going to fold. So uh, this has got to change. And, of course, Obama is now a lame duck. He's on his way out. Right? It's time to end this religious aura of untouchability that surrounds uh, Obama. He's, he's a desperate demagogue looking for, he would say, a legacy. But it's a legacy in terms of you know, what the Council on Foreign Relations want or what the, uh, the Brookings Institution might want. That's the kind of legacy that he's interested in. And we uh, you know, sufferers out here in the U.S. economy, we don't care about his legacy. We care about the general welfare, not the, not the legacy of some narcissistic individual. Well, well, how do we come up with the income for the federal budget to fund the social safety net? What do you think should be done? I think that's, that's a very good question. And let me hasten to say there are undoubtedly Keynesians who would say, no, that's, that's not even a goal. The problem for Keynesians is you can't do everything on the federal budget. The federal budget is under tremendous pressure and will continue to be so because we've got to maintain and indeed expand Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, WIC, Head Start, unemployment benefits, food stamps, 
and so forth, right? Just take food stamps. We got 50 million people who are getting by on a dollar fifty per person per meal, and that's not enough. That should be more, not less. Now, of course, the Republicans want to cut that by about a third, and the Democrats maybe want to cut it by five or ten percent. That's all crazy. So the pressure on the federal budget is already enormous, and I think it's it's right. It's politically better, and it's also economically better to find new sources of income. Now, the most obvious is the one we've talked about a number of times in the past, but which is now once again in the headlines. That is the Wall Street sales tax. Now, let me hasten to say, when I say Wall Street sales tax, I mean a 1% tax on buying and selling, the transfer of ownership of stocks, bonds, and above all, derivatives. Derivatives means futures, options, indices, all the combinations of those collateralized debt obligations, credit default swaps, structured investment vehicles, all different kinds of derivatives need to be taxed, and they need to be taxed at the notional value. The notional value means not the price that is paid actually for the derivative when you buy and sell it, but the value of the underlying asset, which determines the price of the uh, of the derivative. A little bit complicated, but you want to get as much uh, income as you can. Now, the news on this front is we've just had Senator Harkin of Iowa, who's now in his last um, you know, term in the Senate, joined by Sheldon Whitehouse of, of Rhode Island and Congressman DeFazio of Oregon. And the other co-sponsor on the Senate side is Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont. DeFazio has got 17 or 18 co-sponsors in the House for his version of this. And it is a bill to impose a small tax on the turnover of stocks, bonds, and derivatives. It is three one-hundredths of one percent on those. Let me hasten to say, this is way too small. Three one-hundredths of one percent. Three basis points, right? A hundred basis points makes one percent. I'm all for this. It is the foot in the door. It is the wedge of something much bigger. But let me just hasten to say, this is not enough. In other words, the full-fledged Wall Street sales tax is 1%. Now, let me also point out, it's all the more urgent because Wall Street in general pays nothing, right? We've just looked at at recent statistics from from various uh, Wall Street money center banks. And if you look at them, you look at J.P. Morgan, you look at Wells Fargo, you look at Citibank, the federal corporate income tax is supposed to be 35%. Most of these Wall Street institutions pay 2 3 4%. Some of them pay nothing. Some of them actually get more money back from the federal government than they've paid in. The refund check is bigger than what they've paid in. The champion on that, and they're in the news again today, General Electric, and General Electric is a bank. It's a hedge fund, actually. It's not the industrial corporation that you may think. It is a hedge fund, sometimes called a hedge fund in drag because it's camouflaged. This is Imelt. He's a crony of Obama. They have got something like you know $100 billion in money that they have socked away overseas. So they're bending the law or breaking the law in order to avoid paying any tax. But generally speaking... General Electric pays nothing in many, many recent years, and in some years they've even gotten more money back. The point of this is 
that as soon as you're talking about the federal corporate income tax, this is where the Cayman Islands, the tax shelters, the super well-heeled accountants come in and find ways to avoid taxation. What cannot be avoided is if you're doing stock trades and those trades cross an exchange, that's all in the light of day. You will pay. There's very few ways of avoiding a sales tax that is paid for by the seller at the point of transaction. So this is the first benefit, right? You'd be getting enough revenue to immediately stabilize the federal budget and remove all pressure on entitlements. And indeed, some of these could be expanded in the way that I've tried to to outline. How much money from the Fed has gone to the zombie banks since the financial crash of 2008? And could you talk more generally about the Fed? What do you think should happen there? Let's then move on to the recovery, which is what what you've just asked about. In the crisis, the Fed made available lines of credit, which, according to some published sources anyway, got up to $27 trillion, right? $27,000 billion in line of credit that was available to financial institutions. And it means foreign banks as well as Wall Street banks. I call them zombie banks because... They don't do what a bank should do. They're not commercial banks. They don't lend for plant and equipment. Right? They don't um, you know, provide money for import-export financing or any of the other useful things that a bank might do. There are still banks that do those things. Right? Those are local and regional banks, but because of their small size, they can't do it, and also because of the environment that they're put in. It's harder for them to do what they might otherwise be doing. So we're left with these with these zombie banks. Now, one way or the other, we're going to have to get rid of the zombie banks. There's generally an idea that the too-big-to-fail stuff uh, won't work, right? We've got Sherrod Brown wants to break up the banks. Barofsky, who was the uh, watchdog for the TARP, he's interested in breaking up these banks. You've got um, any number of, of others, right? That the era of too-big-to-fail, I think a Sheila Bear is to some degree on that, on that line, too big to fail zombie banks, they're beyond all, all law, right? They can do money laundering, right? They can launder drug money like HSBC. Uh, they can engage in speculation like the London Whale, as we've seen with J.P. Morgan. What it shows, by the way, is that the Dodd-Frank law is an absolute failure. So what we're left with then is zombie banks that are really just waiting for either the next panic crash, right, the next panic run on them as banks, or that that some political process will break them up, and I hope it's the latter. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Beat Austerity with a 1% Wall Street sales tax and a nationalized Fed. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. But what we're then left with is, who could finance a recovery? How in God's name can you finance a recovery? The zombie banks won't do it, right? The zombie banks are focused on their own survival and speculation and derivatives. They're the ones who are driving up the price of gasoline, needless to say, with their speculation. Um, The federal budget, again, it seems to me, heavily overloaded with the tremendous social costs of of the depression we're in. And I think it's unrealistic, I really do, that you can simply finance everything the whole economy from now until kingdom come out of the federal budget. No, that won't work. 
The, the Keynesian idea, of course, is that if you do pump priming through the federal budget, at a certain point, the private sector will take over. But the zombie banks are not in a position to take over. They never will. So what you're left with is your central bank and the potential of making that into a, into a national bank. And here's what I would, I would point to. Even the Keynesian will admit that there are different kinds of stimulus, right? The Keynesians love to talk about fiscal stimulus, right? Fiscal stimulus is the federal deficit, which has anti-cyclical, anti-depression overtones as far as it goes, right? And that's true. Then you've got monetary stimulus, right? If you let the money supply grow. If you have QE2 with, with helicopter Ben Bernanke, that's supposed to be a stimulus. The point is that doesn't, doesn't really seem to be working. That turns into hot money and just goes for speculative purposes by these, by these zombie banks. But there's another kind of stimulus. There's credit stimulus. And we know what that is. We've seen it. In 2008, 2009, 2010, the Federal Reserve opened a series of windows that were used for credit stimulus. Right? The classic one is the TAF, Term Auction Facility. Then there was the um, primary dealer credit facility. If you were a primary dealer in U.S. Treasury bonds, you could go to a window of the Federal Reserve and get huge amounts of money at practically zero percent interest. And if you look, there were probably, I guess, the best part of a dozen of these, right? There was one for money market funds. There was one for um, credit card companies. They had a special credit stimulus window or auction facility, the TAF, the TALF, and, and on and on. So that is a credit stimulus. It means if you fit a certain category of economic activity, you go to that window and you can get large amounts of money at very good terms, right? Long maturities, 0% or practically zero uh, interest. And here is the thing. If we look back at Germany in the pre-Hitler um, phase, when they had the depression and people were trying to figure out ways to get out of the depression, they, they faced a situation where they had to pay reparations. So the, the situation for, for Germany is actually a little bit similar to our own. We now have a reactionary Republican group in the Congress, which uh, I think it's a mistake to try to compromise with them. I think the goal ought to be to, to destroy them, frankly, to uh, to, to bring up issues that will break up the Republican Party, to accelerate its decline, right? Demographically, it's already in decline. Uh, but right now, you can, you can look at uh, a column by Paul Krugman in the New York Times a month or so ago, and he says, well, we won't be able to have a recovery for the next two years because the Republicans will block all measures in, in that direction. That's a little bit like Germany in 1931. You know, we can't get any money because we're paying all the money for reparations from, from World War I. So, so what do you do? Look at this ability of the Federal Reserve to open these windows, credit stimulus windows, and notice that this is done by the Federal Reserve by itself. No congressional action is necessary. And here is what it comes down to. Let's assume we have a real president. We don't, but let's assume that we had one, and then we can, we can do other variations. A real president would perhaps pick up the phone or 
call Bernanke to the White House and say, look, in the crisis, you opened these special windows, credit stimulus facilities, as you called them. What I want you to do now is to put out a tender offer. I want you to offer, and that's, that's what these windows do, right? They're an offer to buy or accept things as collateral for loans. I want you to put out an offer to the states and to regional uh, authorities, right? The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey and similar things that exist uh, elsewhere. And I want you to uh, say that we're going to buy... Let's let's say three trillion dollars worth, right? Not not twenty seven trillion the way it was for the banks, but a, a, a measly three trillion. We want to put out a, a tender offer that the Federal Reserve infrastructure window is willing to buy three trillion dollars worth of bonds from states and cities and counties and authorities and other possible entities. If you had a national infrastructure bank, you could channel some of this through that, but you want to make sure that no Wall Street characters were in there raking off the money. And the characteristics of these bonds that we're willing to buy is they've got to be for the creation of infrastructure, right? For the rebuilding of the interstate highway system, the national railway system, freight, passenger, and commuter rail, water projects, uh, irrigation systems, canals for canal transportation, energy production, um, housing, public housing, schools, libraries, government buildings, hospitals. We need to build about a 1,000 hospitals after the losses of recent decades and so forth. And the Federal Reserve would therefore say, okay, states come forward, localities, authorities come forward. We're willing to buy $3 trillion worth of uh, bonds of that type. Now, that would be a credit stimulus, as you can, you can hear, right? It would be $3 trillion. It would be more than three times the size of Obama's uh, stimulus. And all of this can be done off the federal budget. In other words, this is federal lending, not federal spending. And it can be done by the Federal Reserve acting as a national bank. Now, how does this differ from QE3? QE3, which is supposed to go on indefinitely, uh, until uh, until employment improves, how is this different? It's a relatively minor change, and that's why th- there's no, you know, there's no heresy, there's no Bolshevism involved here. Instead of saying we, the Fed, are willing to buy eighty-five billion dollars per month of very very dubious mortgage-backed securities, which is mostly what they buy, right? Exactly. They That's buy all they're junk. Doing. Yeah. They buy junk derivatives. Mortgage-backed securities are toxic assets, toxic junk derivatives. And they say, okay, we'll take that. We'll buy that from you and give you cash. Right. In this case, you'd be getting high-quality state bonds where the collateral would be, well, the collateral would be your transcontinental maglev railway your new interstate highway system, your new water system, right? Your tunnel under the Hudson River, your tunnel under the uh, Baltimore Inner Harbor, your Texas T-Bone, uh, California, I'm glad to see is already out in front, but that the California system needs to be integrated into a national 
system, right? In other words, the 225-mile-an-hour fast rail, that's absolutely the way to go. That's absolutely great. But that's got to become part of a nationwide network, and you've got to be able to get on the train and go to Chicago and New York and Boston and all the rest of it. In other well, words, no, well, but why, why aren't they doing it? I mean, they're giving all this money to the banks. I don't get it. <laughs> well, uh, again, uh, this, it, it, it is the logic of uh, privately owned central banks, because the Federal Reserve is privately owned, right? The central part of the Federal Reserve, the Board of Governors, is appointed by the president and requires the, the consent of the Senate. But uh, when you get to those uh, branches, like the San Francisco branch of the Federal Reserve downtown, those are private. Those, the, the stock of those is owned by the local banks, which then turn out simply to be tentacles of the, of the Wall Street uh, institution. So what we're talking about, let me uh, put it another way. What can you do? What, what are the available possibilities of economics in, in, in general, right? One is to do this QE2, uh, which I would call hot money. It would buy toxic assets, give money to zombie banks. The zombie banks then send that money abroad, usually to the hottest speculative market. Well, the, the hot money method has not worked. There is also the consumer-led Recovery, this was more or less embodied in the stimulus and the supplemental. This is what Pelosi and company were doing, you know, when she had control of the Congress. Uh, that has some benefit, but then once it's over, it's over. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't get you to what you uh, have to have, uh, which is, I think, important to hold on to. You've got to revive your capital goods industries. You cannot have an economy based on consumer spending only. An economy where three-quarters of economic activity is consumer spending is a very sick economy. It's an economy that needs to have a capital goods sector rebuilt really fast because you can't, you can't survive that way. So hot money doesn't work. Consumer-led recovery doesn't work. Then, of course, we have the Ron Paul or Andrew Mellon uh, variation, which is to have an immediate deflationary crash, liquidate stocks, liquidate bonds, liquidate the farmer, liquidate real estate, let everything crash down to minimal levels, and then supposedly you get a recovery. Well, again, as I always say, too bad if you died in the process, because a lot of people will. Uh, that generally also has not worked. So hot money doesn't work. Consumer-led recovery, Keynesian, doesn't work. Deflationary crash doesn't work. What's left is what I've just said, credit stimulus that targets infrastructure and through heavy-duty investments. You're talking about a large capital investment per job, and you can afford a large capital investment per job because you're, you're using credit that's generated from the cornucopia of the Federal Reserve, right? That's the whole point of a central bank. They generate credit out of nothing. Good. They should do that, but they should make sure that it flows into things that are productive, right? It will become a national bank. It will become what Alexander Hamilton wanted and what we had to some degree for the first, uh, you know, several decades of the existence of the United States. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, what you're, what you're really saying then is that the Fed should be put under the Treasury, right? Yes. But again, right now, you can't do any of that, right? Uh, right now, I'm saying take advantage of the inherent lawlessness of the Federal Reserve situation. Helicopter Ben Bernanke in 07, 08, 09 created these windows 
which were credit stimulus windows. And he did that in response to, you know, people screaming at him that that's what they wanted, right? Some Wall Street zombie banker would call him up and say, hey, look, we want to be able to dump our toxic derivatives on you, so open up that window right away. And he did it. Now, suppose he's getting a different kind of phone call. So we get into the habit of seeing the Federal Reserve, the inherent credit-creating ability of the Federal Reserve is, is actually a planetary resource, right? Sure, when you had the panic in 2008, it's the Federal Reserve that kept Barclays Bank going and Societe Generale and Deutsche Bank and Unicredito and Santander, right? and, and, and. So the entire financial system of the world really revolves around the Federal Reserve. So why not use that to generate a world economic uh, recovery? And as you say, it just comes down to what kinds of assets are they willing to buy? Exactly. Or accept as collateral, right? And they've already accepted, I mean, they, they've accepted everything but the kitchen sink. In other words, they've accepted the most dubious commercial paper, the most toxic mortgage-backed securities. They're buying them all the time. Why not do what I suggest, offer to buy several trillion dollars, three, four trillion dollars, let the Fed put out that much in terms of new contracts, Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Beat Austerity with a 1% Wall Street sales tax and a nationalized Fed. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Obama, the Postmodern Coup, Obama, the Unauthorized Biography, Just Too Weird, Bishop Romney and the Mormon Takeover of America, and co-author of George Bush, the Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback. Webster Tarpley is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity at www.againstausterity.org. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution? Which is the evolution of the mind If you seek, then you shall find That we all come from the divine You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom That are written on the walls of life Then universally we will stand And divided we will fall Because love conquers all You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout 
trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?